We Have Found You Wanting by Rose Schneiderman. I would be a traitor to these poor burned bodies if I came here to talk good fellowship. We have tried you good people of the public and we have found you wanting. The old inquisition had its rack and its thumb screws and its instruments of torture with iron teeth. We know what these things are today. The iron teeth are our necessities. The thumb screws are the high powered and swift machinery close to which we must work and the rack is here in the fire trap structures that will destroy us the minute they catch fire. This is not the first time girls have been burned alive in the city. Every week I must learn of the untimely death of one of my sister workers. Every year thousands of us are maimed. The life of men and women is so cheap and property is so sacred. There are so many of us for one job, it matters little if 146 of us are burned to death. We have tried you citizens, we are trying you now, and you have a couple of dollars for the sorrowing mothers, brothers, and sisters by way of a charity gift. But every time the workers come out in the only way they know to protest against conditions which are unbearable, the strong hand of the law is allowed to press down heavily upon us. Public officials have only words of warning to us, warning that we must be intensely peaceable, and they have the workhouse just back all of their warnings. The strong hand of the law beats us back when we rise into the conditions that make life unbearable. I can't talk fellowship to you who are gathered here. Too much blood has been spilled. I know from my experience it is up to the working people to save themselves. The only way they can save themselves is by a strong working class movement. Welcome fellow plebs. My name is Sean and this is Tribunus Plebis. Fodder. Miriam Webster's online second definition. Inferior or readily available material used to supply a heavy demand. The concept of soldiers as fodder as nothing more than food to be consumed by battle dates back at least to the 16th century. For example, in William Shakespeare's play Henry IV, Part One, there is a scene where Prince Henry ridicules John Falstaff's pitiful group of soldiers. The concept of the poor as fodder for profits is likely as old as greed and money themselves, and it certainly predates the 16th century and even the Common Era. In 1911, in New York City, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire happened. A spark took hold in a massive pile of scrap cuttings under a trimming and sewing table on the 8th floor of the building in which the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory occupied the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors. The fire quickly spread to all three floors and beyond. 
The workers, when they became aware of the fire, they fled. They ran for the freight elevators, the fire escape, and the two stairways to street level. The Green Street stairway was quickly engulfed in flames and rendered useless. The stairway to Washington Place was locked. The man with the key to that door was a supervisor and was one of the first to escape, leaving many people trapped and unable to escape themselves from the flames. The freight elevators did work for a time. The operators, Joseph Zito and Gaspar Mortolaro, saved many lives as they made three trips each to the burning floors to rescue workers. Mortolaro was forced to give up his efforts when the rails of his elevator succumbed to the heat and buckled and prevented its use. Zito's elevator suffered a far more gruesome and depressing fate. Desperate workers had pried open the elevator doors and begun to either try to slide down the cables or to just simply jump into the shaft to escape the flames. The impacts of these bodies on the elevator car buckled its frame so severely that it no longer was operable. For those who made it onto the fire escape, things got no better. The fire escape Singular, and that's important because the city allowed the factory owners to build just one fire escape rather than the three that would normally have been called for, it was poorly made. The metal was too thin, and it was secured too poorly, and it was very likely critically broken before the fire even started. And even if it hadn't been broken, the weight of the people and the heat from the fire caused it to fail spectacularly. About 20 human beings fell with that fire escape as it peeled from the building and fell 100 feet to the street below. They all died on impact. Those who were backed up waiting for the fire escape to clear so that they could use it themselves, they died in the fire. That day, 62 desperate people would jump to their deaths. In total, 146 people were killed that day. 123 women and girls, and 23 men. The youngest of the victims were just 14 years old, Kate Leone and Rosaria Sarah Maltese. The owners of the company were indicted on manslaughter charges and put on trial. The defense lawyers used the fact that the stories of those who survived the fire all matched up so well and were so consistent on their retellings that they convinced the jury that they all must be lying and simply repeating what the prosecutors forced them to memorize. The owners were found not guilty on these charges, but were found at fault for wrongful death in a civil suit later on. The owners were forced to pay $75 in restitution to the families of the deceased as punishment. Their insurance company paid the owners $60,000 more than the reported losses including a payout of $400 per casualty. These guys even profited off of the deaths to the tune of $325 per body. The owners of this company prevented, through their actions, all of these people the ability to leave their work in time of a disaster, and it resulted in 146 deaths. This is what happens when we allow our poor and working class people to become fodder for profits. In 2021, at an Amazon warehouse in Illinois, 
Amazon bosses prevented workers from leaving during their own disaster, a massive tornado. This move resulted in at least six deaths and other people being injured. So why bring up a disaster from more than a century ago and compare it to this latest tragedy? Well, there are actually a lot of reasons for this, but the main couple are power and control. The Waste Shirt Factory had total control over its workers, including locking them into that death trap of a factory. Amazon had total control as well and locked their own employees into the building. Now, the locks that Amazon used aren't the same as the locks used by the Hell's Kitchen factory. Triangle Waste Shirt used actual physical locks, padlocks and door locks, to control their workers. In Illinois, in that Amazon warehouse, it was a different sort of lock, a lock made of fear and threats and uneven power relations. Amazon told workers they couldn't leave and many did not. They were coerced into keeping a job over being safe. This is the sort of thing that can happen when employees are not making enough money to live any further ahead than their next paycheck. When the next rent or mortgage check is due and that next paycheck is so crucial to making that payment and keeping your head above water, you know, never mind food and cars and healthcare, it becomes a problem. And what we have here is a discrepancy in power. The power a massive business like Amazon wields versus the small amount of power that an individual worker wields. This extreme discrepancy in power dynamics is often exacerbated even further in far-flung corners of a state like Illinois, or, you know, really anywhere else, where a big employer like Amazon will wield far more power over workers than they would do in a more densely populated region. In essence, Amazon exerts tremendous monopsonistic power in these situations. Now, in all honesty, I don't actually know the makeup of Edwardsville, Illinois, or the surrounding area. But even in denser populated areas Amazon moves into, it destroys labor markets and employee power. And Edwardsville does seem like a pretty populated area from what I'm being told by my Illinois spy network. So let's say Amazon is still pretty powerful there. If a large, powerful employer has absolute power over its workers, then the risk that they will put those employees in danger is extremely high, hovering right around 100.0% certainty. Meanwhile, over in Kentucky, a candle factory was destroyed by the exact same tornado and left eight people dead. In this Mayfield-owned factory, employees asked to be allowed to leave to shelter at their own homes where they felt safer. Supervisors told the employees that they would be fired or risk being fired if they left the building. As tornado sirens rang across the city, bosses repeatedly told their workers that anyone who left would either be fired or that they were very likely to be fired. And those are direct quotes from employees who heard these statements. And again, these statements from survivors are uniform across all of them, just like in the Triangle Fire example. And again, the corporate ghouls are already spinning these statements as propaganda and claiming that they are being made up. The old Triangle Fire defensive playbook got the dust blown off of it this week for sure. These threats of being fired left the workers with a predicament. Ride it out and risk their lives to keep their jobs, or leave and risk that job. To risk not making rent or mortgage next month. To risk not being able to pay the gas bills or the car payment or for the groceries this week. 
Some employees did indeed leave and go home despite the promised consequences, but many, actually most, kowtowed and stayed in a desperate, coerced attempt to keep their job, and they risked their lives to do so. And eight people lost that bet. Eight people died because of these corporate pressures. Many more were injured along the way. Again, this control leads to very avoidable deaths. In a less populated, struggling state like Kentucky, an employer can wield, much like Amazon in our previous example, extraordinary power over its workers. And that power's edge is formed you know, by much of the same material as Amazon's, with fear and threat and coercion. Even smaller companies can wield monopsonistic power in smaller towns and cities. This power to fire workers and destroy lives is nearly unlimited in these at-will work states. You walk away from a workplace that is actively putting you in an unsafe work environment, they can fire you. Talked about a union? Fired. Refuse to do unsafe work? Fired. Leave the work site to go home and shelter with your family as a record tornado sweeps through and destroys your county? They can and will fire you. And this isn't even to mention the power that companies and business groups hold over our government. As I currently sit here speaking into this microphone, there is a bill in the Illinois State House that aims to actually address the very situation that happened as these tornadoes tore through these two factories. According to the National Employment Law Project, workers in Illinois feel pressured to accept harmful workplace conditions because of fear. Fact 1. A third of Illinois workers, 32%, say that fear of being fired or disciplined would prevent them from raising workplace health and safety concerns to their employer. Fact 2. More than two in three workers, 68%, reported that they or a co-worker worked when sick or injured to avoid being fired. All of this relates back to overly permissive and ultimately abusive laws called at-will employment. Basically, this means that a company can fire an employee for any reason or even no reason at all. These are the locks and keys that modern companies use to get us to risk our lives for their profit. The fear of hunger and homelessness and debt, not just for us as individuals, but often for our larger families that we support as well. And here's a snapshot of how at-will employment law puts people in danger as they work for Amazon. This is an excerpt from some text messages sent between an Amazon delivery driver and their dispatcher. Now, just to be clear, this driver is working for a third-party vendor and not directly for Amazon. And there will be another episode released in a day or two talking about this phenomena, so stay tuned. And just for a little bit more context, this is the area that the tornadoes tore through, obviously. And the messages start with the driver saying that their radio has been going off, which I suspect means some sort of emergency broadcast system type warning. So anyway, it starts at 7.08 p.m. Driver, radio's been going off. Dispatch, okay, just keep driving. We can't just call people back for a warning unless Amazon tells us to do so. Driver, just relaying in case y'all didn't hear it over there. 7.40 p.m. Driver, 
Tornado alarms are going off over here. Dispatch. Just keep delivering for now. We have to wait for word from Amazon. If we need to bring people back, the decision will ultimately be up to them. I will let you know if the situation changes at all. I am talking with them now about it. Driver. How about for my own personal safety, I'm going to head back. Having alarms going off next to me and nothing but locked buildings around me isn't sheltering in place. That's wanting to turn this van into a casket. Hour left of delivery time. And if you look at the radar, the worst of the storm is going to be right on top of me in 30 minutes. Driver. It was actual sirens. Dispatch. If you decided to come back, that choice is yours. But I can tell you it won't be viewed as for your own safety. The safest practice is to stay exactly where you are. If you decide to return with your packages, it will be viewed as you refusing your route, which will ultimately end with you not having a job come tomorrow morning. The sirens are just a warning. Driver. I'm literally stuck in this damn van without a safe place to go with a tornado on the ground. Basically, these text messages from the driver are this. I am scared and I want to go somewhere safe. The response from dispatch and Amazon is this. Amazon does not care. Keep pushing. Keep risking your life for them or get fired. Modern locks and keys. These bills I mentioned before the text messages, the bills to replace at-will laws with just-cause laws, which would make it far more difficult to fire employees, were, and are, of course, opposed by the Illinois Chamber of Commerce and other groups, all of which Amazon is a powerful member of. And these, in turn, are, of course, just a few of the many lobbying efforts that Amazon makes locally, statewide, and federally to resist any implementation of just cause statutes. No amount of employees donating money to politics or moving politically can ever put as much money in political force behind their message as one man here in the form of Jeff Bezos. He has literally billions of times more power than all of his workers added together. But he has less power than all of his workers combined. And I just want to point out and be clear that Jeff Bezos is not a friend of the working class. In fact, he is so dismissive of our lives that he didn't even bother to make particular note of the deaths in one of his warehouses. Instead, he took the day after these tragic deaths to make merry with a former football star that he shot into space. That's how little his so-called teammates mean to him if they aren't fabulously rich and famous. So please, for God's sake, please stop acting like Jeff Bezos or people like Musk and Gates are worthy of any praise at all, let alone the wallet-licking worship that some of us extol upon these absolute ghouls. And I also want to point out here that the Illinois legislature is Democrat-controlled, just in case anyone thought that this was a Republican logjam. The one thing that has been consistent in hyper-capitalist America over the past, I mean, I mean forever, I guess, is that companies and capital owners will absolutely, positively, without doubt and without hesitation, put employees' lives on the line to make an extra buck, and nobody but the workers themselves have ever been able to put a stop to it. Or even tried. 
It was true in 1911. It was true even on 9-11 when multiple companies actually told their employees that they did not have permission to leave the second tower before it got hit, even as the first tower was burning. And it is true right now all across the country. The only cure for this situation is workers banding together to move as one unit and to refuse to work in unsafe conditions for low wages and even through natural disasters. The power differential has to be addressed. Now we shall see how state and federal agencies deal with Amazon, Mayfield Candle, third-party contractors, and any and every other company that refused to release its workers so that they could shelter on site or even somewhere that they felt more safe. I'm not very optimistic that they will do anything at all, certainly nothing of true substance. This is another dyed-in-the-system truth that has always existed. The two Triangle factory owners got off scot-free. One of them was actually even cited two years later for once again locking his employees into a factory. He was fined for it. The fine was $20. $20 was, at the time, the lowest possible fine for such a violation. No government stepped in to help future victims of this corporate violence. In fact, they did the complete opposite and provided cover for them. The people who actually stepped up were the workers themselves, in mass, in solidarity, in unions. They forced the issues and they quite often won. Let's get back to winning. And that is the episode, guys. I just wanted to hit on this Amazon thing real quick. And I appreciate y'all for being here. Um, you know, you can like, share, subscribe everywhere when you listen to the podcast. Uh, we have a YouTube channel now. Please subscribe there. You get more info in the videos with, uh, you know, infographics and slides and stuff and hopefully some good pictures and that's it uh, i love you guys thank you very much <laughs>